0: All right, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to read this parable of the sheep and the goats to you. And then we're going to do a study where we're going to go back in the Old Testament and kind of lay a foundation for what Jesus is teaching here. And after we've laid that foundation for a little while, we're going to take a little while to do that. We're going to go back and reread the parable of the sheep and the goats. And hopefully the second time we read it tonight, it'll just come alive in a way you've never really seen before. Like I hinted at in our opening prayer, we in the church have tended to read the parable of the sheep and the goats and try to make it about us. And I want to show you tonight that the parable of the sheep and the goats isn't really about us. The church has already been given salvation. We've already been given righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Hopefully you understand that you don't get into heaven because you gave someone a glass of water. You visited them in prison. Yet for years, we've tried to make this how God determines who goes into heaven and who doesn't. And that's not what this passage is about. So we're going to take some time tonight to go back to a lot of Old Testament prophecies that have set the stage for what Jesus is going to be teaching. We're going to go back and look at some of the things Jesus has been teaching already in chapter 24 and chapter 25 to set the stage for the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I pray that tonight you'll walk out of here going, Wow, I didn't know that all that was there in that parable. So let's just read the parable first here, starting in verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left... Taking some time, as I've just talked about, to go back to the prophecies in the Old Testament will help us to understand even better some of the depth of what Jesus is saying here. We've got to remember, who is Jesus' audience? When he came the first time to the earth, who is his audience? The Jews. Go to Matthew chapter 15. me remind you that his his main audience is the Jews. Predominantly, it was the Jews. Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and crying, was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, keep reading. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So here we see Jesus did do something for this Canaanite woman. He did respond to her request. But who was he sent predominantly to? The Jews. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Look at verses 5 and 6. When he sent out his disciples two by two the first time. When he sent the apostles out. In verses five and six, he says, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So keeping in mind Jesus' audience will help you understand a little bit of what's going on. Jesus is still in the last days of his ministry on the earth in his first coming. He's mainly predominantly there to preach and to teach to the nation of Israel. Now, Jesus has come and he will come again to fulfill all scripture. And there are many scriptures that point to to this end of the age that Jesus is referring to here in the last two chapters. When I mean the last two chapters, I mean chapter 24 and chapter 25. Remember how this all started in chapter 24, where Jesus talks about how the temple is going to be destroyed and one stone will not be left on top of another. And the disciples come to him privately and they say, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then Jesus, as we've already looked at, begins to lay out the tribulation period. And how there's gonna be the wars and the rumors of wars, and we paralleled that with the book of Revelation and the opening of the seals, the Antichrist stepping into the wing of the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation, him telling the Jews, You better run for your life and get out of Jerusalem. They're gonna go hide in the wilderness where he's gonna protect them for three and a half years. And then there's gonna be the signs and the sun and the moon, and the sun's gonna go dark, and the moon's gonna to turn to blood, and all these things are gonna happen. And then Jesus is gonna come back with his angels, and he's gonna come. And he's going to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Not the rapture, but the gathering of the righteous all over the globe. Jesus has laid that all out. And then, as you know, at the end of chapter 24 and into chapter 25, he's been teaching us about the fact of we're not to try to figure out when it's going to be coming back. It's not for us to know the times of the seasons the Father set by his own authority. But we're to be ready and watching and ready and waiting for his return. And he tells the parables of the servant who thought his master wasn't coming back for a while and he was caught by surprise. And then he tells the parable of the ten virgins and how these the some weren't ready for it to be a long period of time. And he dealt with the parable of the talents and how... The real issue is not how soon or how late he comes back, but what you do in the meantime. And So this has all been setting the stage for what Jesus says now here in this parable. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when he comes, he's going to set up a throne on the earth and he's going to judge the nations. And he's going to judge them according to how they treated these brothers of mine. We're going to deal with what he's talking about. So a knowledge of the Old Testament prophecies will better help us understand what's being said here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And we're going to take a look at this whole chapter. Because hopefully you're going to see tonight that Deuteronomy 32 not only gives the history of the nation of Israel, it's also prophecy about what is to come. And you're going to see in a little bit later tonight that actually Deuteronomy 32 is going to be referenced in the book of Revelation. And actually, hopefully, if you're following along with us and track with us tonight, you're going to see that Deuteronomy 32 even mentions the church. So it's kind of an interesting and an awesome chapter. Deuteronomy 32, uh, as you see at the end of chapter 31, verse 30, it's called the Song of Moses. And at the end of chapter 31, verse 30, then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Now, I'm going to take some time and break this chapter down into sections. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 first. Here's the Song of Moses. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright. Is he? So in the first four verses of this song, God lays out that God is holy, he's perfect, and everything he does is right, and he's just. So keep that in mind, because as you're going to see, he's going to talk to Israel about what he did with them, how they responded, what he's going to do in response, and what's going to happen at the end of time. And so keep this in mind, folks. God is holy and perfect and righteous and just in everything that he does. We may not understand his ways. We might understand why he does things or allows certain things. Don't lose sight of this: God can do nothing wrong. Can he make mistakes? Can he think, "Oh man, I sure wish I had thought—I wish I had thought about that a little bit better"? No, he is perfect in all that he does. It's all under his control. But then he says in the next chapter, in this chapter of the next verses, verses five through twenty, that even though God blessed Israel, they rebelled and they rejected him by worshiping demons. Let's take a look at the next section now. They have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they're blemished. They're a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of all the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. He found him, Jacob, Israel, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. And he suckled him with the honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with the fat of lambs, and rams of Bashan, and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun, this is Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God, who made him, and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that had, they had never known to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Now in this section, as he's laying out the history of Israel, he says... Look, I, I, I set out the boundaries and the portions for all of mankind on the earth. But I chose a special people to be my allotted heritage, and that's Israel. And I treated them well. I took them out of slavery. I brought them out of Egypt. I brought them into the promised land. And, and I fed them and treated them so well, yet they became proud and fat and sleek. And they stopped worshiping me, God said, and began to worship demons, which really aren't any gods at all. And God says, what am I going to do? I'm going to hide my face from them. And if you studied the nation of Israel and their history, God had warned them all along. If you turn your back on me, here are the consequences. If you, if you honor me, I'll bless you and your, your family will multiply, your herds will multiply and, 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 and I will do you good. I'm a generous God. But if you go against me, I'm going to turn my back away from you and you're going to suffer want. And other nations are going to get your land and all this. They went back and forth as they repent for a period of time and God would bring them back and they've gone through this dance of worshiping him and then not, and then worshiping him and then not. And when you get to verse 21, as you're gonna see in this one verse, the church is mentioned. you are gonna see that they made God jealous by worshiping what is not God. So he is gonna make Israel jealous by taking a people, the Gentiles, whom the Jews see as nothing and giving their promises and blessings them, Look at verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Put a finger here in Deuteronomy 32 and run over to Romans chapter 11 with me. Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 11 through 16. Paul dealing with whether or not God's done with Israel. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11. Paul says, So I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much then that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So here... Paul ties what God says here in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, in the Song of Moses, he ties it to where he's going in Romans where he says God's not done with Israel. Oh, were they disobedient? Yes. Did he have every right to wipe them off the face of the earth? Without question. But because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because of the fact that God is just and he will not break his promise He's kept Israel alive. I could take you, we don't have time to do that, through the Old Testament and the places where God over and over says, for my own sake I do this, not for your sake, Israel. Am I going to redeem you in the end? I do it for my own sake, for my own glory. In in, in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, he said, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not destroyed. The only reason Israel still exists, folks, is not because they're better than anybody. They've probably been worse. They've had more light. They've had more revelation. They've had God reveal himself to them in ways that other nations haven't. Yet they turned against him and worshiped other gods. Even in the midst of him bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land. It wasn't a few days, but Moses disappears on the mountain. and What do they say? Let's make a golden calf and worship it. I mean, they're getting the Shekinah glory of God by day and then fire by night. And it's still. And God says, you know what? I'm going to turn my back on you. I'm going to hide my face from you for a while, Israel. And you've gone after gods that are no gods to make me jealous. I'm going to take a people that you don't consider a people. And by the way, if you know the history of Israel, they didn't think real fondly of anybody that was Gentile, that wasn't a Jew. I'm going to take a people that you don't consider a people, a foolish nation in your eyes, and I'm going to use them to make you jealous. And that's what we're in right now, folks. We're in this time period where God has put Israel on hold, he's not done, but he's doing a work in the world where Gentiles for the most part are being saved. There's still a Jew here and a Jew there, for the most part though, it's Gentiles who are being saved. But that time period is gonna come to a close, and listen closely. When that time period comes to a close, he's gonna go back and fulfill all the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the nation of Israel. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, and then we're gonna look at the rest of the chapter. And you're going to see in verses 22 through 43 that as severe as God's punishment on Israel will be, he will not wipe them out totally, but he will ultimately judge, listen closely, he'll ultimately judge all of the nations that rejected him and went against his people, Israel. Let's go back to Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 32 and look at verses 22 and following. Deuteronomy 32 verse 22. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows upon them, and they shall be wasted with hunger, talking about how he's going to treat Israel, and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of the beasts against them with the venom of the things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for a young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they, the Jews, are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they, would, if they were wise, they would understand this, how they would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store within me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Listen closely. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and I swear as, the, as I live forever, If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance, listen closely now, on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Folks, let me remind you of what we've just looked at here in Deuteronomy 32. In the first four verses, God is holy, perfect, and just. In verses 5 through 20, even though God blessed Israel, they rebelled and rejected him by worshiping demons. Verse 21, they made God jealous by worshiping what is not God. So he'll make Israel jealous by taking a people, the Gentiles, whom the Jews see as nothing and giving their promises and blessings to them for a season. And verses 22 through 43, yet as severe as God's punishment on Israel will be, he will not wipe them out totally, but will ultimately judge all of the nations that rejected him and went against his people, Israel. You'll see in here that he says he's going to bring vengeance on his adversaries. He's going to not wipe Israel out and he's going to keep his promises. But in doing so, as he regathers Israel, as he brings the remnant of Israel to salvation at the end of time, He's also at that time going to judge all of the nations according to how they treated Israel. It's a study for another time. If you remember back when we did Ezekiel, we looked at how God used these other nations like Babylon and Assyria to come in and judge Israel. Yet, interestingly enough, even though they were instruments of God to bring judgment on Israel at those times, God says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to judge Babylon for what they did to Israel. And I'm going to judge Assyria for what they did to Israel. But wait a minute. You used them to do it, yeah, but they still had a choice. And they're going to be judged for what they did to Israel you're going to see that he's going to judge Edom and other nations in the last days because of how they treated Israel and how when Israel tried to pass through their land at one time in their history, they wouldn't let them pass through their land for safety. And they actually helped as people raided the nation of Israel. And God says, I remember back when you did that hundreds and thousands of years ago, and I haven't forgotten how you treated Israel. And folks, and we're going to get to, I'll get to you in a second here, Warren. Please understand that as we get to the end of the tribulation period, There comes a point where God not only is doing His judgment on the world, the judgment is going to turn to a purification of Israel and a vengeance on all the nations, listen, according to how they treated Israel. Go ahead, Warren. If I remember right, there's two or three places where God says He's going to judge them because they did more than He intended for them. That's for sure. For sure. That's part of it as well. Go with me to Joel chapter 2. Go to the book of Joel. For those that didn't hear what Warren said, there are some places that actually the prophecy says God's going to judge them because they actually did more against Israel than he intended and wanted wanted them to do. So go to Joel chapter 2. Joel. Joel chapter 2, look at verses 18 through 27. Remember, we just finished Deuteronomy 32 at the end of the Song of Moses, how he's going to cleanse his land, the land of Israel. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Has this happened yet? No. It's still going on. There are reproach among the nations to this day. Stuff's still going on. I I heard an article today how actually anti-Semitism in Germany is ramping up like it hasn't been in a long, long time. This prophecy is talking about the very end of the tribulation period and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And I'll no more make you a reproach among the nations. I'll remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and its vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before." And that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Jump down to verses 30 and 30 to 32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has has said. And among the survivors shall be called those whom the Lord calls. Now go to chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations... And bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, that's the valley of Megiddo. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, who? Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Oh, by the way, have you noticed that even America is guilty? It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you sit on. Both Republican and Democratic presidents over history have been telling Israel, divide the land for peace. God's keeping track. Look at chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. Chapter 3 of Joel, verses 9 through 21. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolation. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom, a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood that I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Now, if you've been with us at all in all our study of prophecy in the end times in the book of Revelation, we, we read that and it's describing the end of the tribulation period, isn't it? And if you remember our study of the book of Ezekiel, how when they build the new temple in the millennial kingdom, how a river is going to start flowing out from the temple on the eastern side and it's going to be only ankle deep for a little while. Then it's going to get shin deep and then it's going to get waist deep and and then you're going to be able to have to swim across it and it's going to turn the Dead Sea fresh. And all these prophecies are all pointing and saying the same thing. When he tells them, go ahead, nations, gather in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Come, turn your, uh, your your pruning hooks into spears. Come on, gather. Gather all the nations. And what does the scripture say? Then in the last days, at the end of the tribulation period... They're going to gather for war to fight against Jesus and fight against Jerusalem, and they're going to come to the Valley of Megiddo, and God is going to deal with them there. When He talks about put in your sickle for the harvest is ripe, and doesn't that read like Revelation chapter 19 with Jesus coming and His garment is stained in blood? And how we've already studied how the battle is going to be such that the blood's going to be six feet deep, the whole 180-something miles of that valley as He destroys the enemies of God. Listen closely, folks. The prophecies have all been saying for years that God is right and holy and just and he's done with Israel as he should, yet because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will fulfill everything he said and he's promised them that they would ultimately get that land as their inheritance. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died before it ever happened. The nation of Israel wasn't even brought into that land until the time of Moses, hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. Yet he said to them, I will give to you and your descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this land. And it's going to be fulfilled. Yes, the church age is going on right now, but we haven't replaced Israel. For a reason and for a season, he's using us to make Israel jealous. But there comes a point where the time of the Gentiles comes to an end. And he finishes. And when he fulfills his promises to Israel and all those prophecies are going to be fulfilled At that same time, he's going to judge all the nations, listen closely, because of how they treated who? Israel. Go with me to Revelation chapter 15. Interestingly enough, when we get in Revelation to the end of the tribulation period, as God sends the last plagues on the earth... And in sending the last plagues, he's setting the stage for the last battle between the nations and God. Look look at chapter 16 real quick. We're going to jump back to verse 15. In chapter 16, we have the seven bowls, the seven last plagues. All right. There is chapter 16 in Revelation. Chapter 16 in Revelation. And look at verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful source came upon people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you're just God, O holy one who is and who was. For you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out <coughs> excuse me, his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its was, water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. So here we see that the stage is being set at the very end as all these things are happening. Folks, can you imagine when every, all the seas turn to blood, the smell of everything? That, it's just going to be unbelievable and the scorch. But yeah, global warming's coming. All right? We're not having global warming right now, but it is coming. But at the same time, the nations are going to be gathered to the valley of Megiddo, the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there's going to be a battle there. But go back to Revelation 15 and look at this very interesting thing that happens as these seven last plagues are introduced. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another angel, or saw another sign in heaven, a great and great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing what? The song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Did you catch that? As these seven last plagues are opened and revealed, as they're about to be poured out on the earth, those who have been killed during the tribulation period and those who are in heaven worshiping God at this time are singing chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. And they say, what well, we just looked at, you're right and holy and true and just, and everything you've done and everything you said you would do, you'll do. Now, let's go back and reread Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46 with this deeper understanding of all that the prophecies have been saying tell me that that the parable of the sheep and the goats doesn't read a little different chapter 25 verse 31 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, who? My brothers. Who's who's my brothers now, according to the prophecies? Israel. You did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they'll also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and naked and sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will into eternal fire. Sorry, life. My bad. The righteous into eternal life. I'm glad you guys are paying attention. The righteous into eternal life. Now, folks, listen closely. It reads totally different now, doesn't it? This isn't God determining who gets into heaven. This is God determining at the end of the tribulation of the people that survive who goes into the millennial kingdom. And it's all according to how they treated Israel, especially you know, what's one of the sad things is there are groups of Christians. And I'm not going to say they're not Christians, but there are groups of those who claim to be Christians who are right now pro-Palestine, anti-Israel. When the scripture is so very, very clear that God says, whoever blesses Israel, I'll bless whoever curses Israel, I'll curse. And I just want to say to you, if you remember back in the days of the Holocaust, you remember reading the Corey ten Boom story in the hiding place and how there were people who during those times were blessing the Israelites and protecting them and taking care of them. As God gives you a heart to do or you see opportunity or he puts on your heart to give to some of these ministries right now, things are going to get worse and worse for Israel. Oh, is God right in doing what he's going to do to them and continue? Yes. But at the same time, he's also paying attention because he's about to redeem them. And take us to be with him and judge the nations accordingly for how they treated his people. And so, folks, I want to pull out a couple of things in closing tonight in the time that we have left. The first thing I want you to see is this. When Jesus comes, look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. I don't know if you caught that or not, where is the throne going to be? It's going to be on earth. It's going to be in we ultimately know it's going to be in Jerusalem, but it's going to be on the earth. When he comes in his glory, he's going to come and sit on his throne. This is not God sitting up in a heavenly throne. This is his coming and sitting on his throne. Go to Matthew 16. Go back to Matthew 16 and let me show you what I mean. Matthew 16, look at verses 24 through 27. He is done. So here he again says he's going to come with his angels and his glory. Go over to chapter 19, 19 verses 23 through 28. In Matthew 19, verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, with God, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So again, he's coming back and he's going to sit on a throne on the earth. On the earth. You want further clarification? Go to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. For too long, too many in the church have taught that Jesus is going to come and he's going to gather his people and then go back to heaven. No, he's coming back here and he's going to be here on the earth. Luke 1, look at verses 26 through 33. Luke 1 verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, greetings. Greetings. David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Let me ask you this question. Is David's throne in heaven? No. Where's David's throne? It was in Israel, in Jerusalem, and the throne is going to be there. And God's going to rule and reign. Jesus is going to come and rule and reign from Jerusalem. And he's going to determine who enters the millennial kingdom from those who survived the tribulation period. And it all according to how they treated Israel. They'll enter the kingdom and give in righteousness. The others go to eternal punishment, which we're going to get to in just a second. Yes? Believers that, died the tribulation Believers that die with the tribulation go immediately to be with the Lord, and then will come back with Him when He comes to set up His kingdom. The tribulation saints, church-age saints, Old Testament saints will all come to life at the end of the tribulation period and rule and reign for a thousand years. Now... I, these people here in Matthew 25, 31 through 46 are those who survived the tribulation period. There's not going to be a lot, but there are going to be those who survived And that's who are going to be. He says, remember, Satan's going to be put in the pit for a thousand years, and he's not only allowed to, be allowed to tempt people, but there is going to still be sin, less sin, because Satan's going to be bound. But there's still going to be people that die during the tribulation period. It won't be any of us that have been given our new bodies or anything by that, at that point. But of the humans who survive the tribulation period, to go into the millennial kingdom, who've been given righteousness, how come there'll still be sin if Satan's bound? Because they're still human. You see, that sin passed on from Adam is still going to be in their DNA. The temptation is going to be less, but sin's still going to be there. And they're going to make a lot of babies. The Bible says people are going to be making lots of babies. They're going to live for a long time again. They're going to, the Bible actually says in Isaiah chapter 65, uh, around verse 18 and following, that if anybody dies during that time period at 100 years old, they'll be considered a cursed or an infant. People are going to live a long time. They're going to make a lot of babies during that time. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan's going to be released from the pit. And he's going to be able to tempt people that have been born during that time. And they're going to gather to fight against Jesus one last time and he's going to destroy him with the breath of his mouth. And then the new heaven and the new earth begins. There's a whole lot that God is doing. He's displaying his glory. All these different time periods and dispensations are for God's purposes to display his glory to the angels. And that's what I want to close with tonight. Look closely. As Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, we see him describe the kingdom or heaven and hell in two very profound ways. Look at verse 34, Matthew 25, verse 34. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Did you catch that? When was the kingdom designed by God and who was it prepared for? It was before the foundation of the world. It was designed by God and it's prepared for who? Those of us who believe, who humble ourselves and say there's only one God and it's God and it's Jesus. And he's provided a way for us to be made right through his sacrifice and his sinless life and his death. And those who will humble themselves and say, whatever you want to do with my life is fine. My life is no longer mine. It's yours. And and, and you're willing to let him do with you as you as he wishes. And he uses you for his purposes. Remember, God's been doing all this to display his glory, not just to the humans. He's been displaying his glory to the angels. I don't have time to get into it. I've touched on it in times past. I honestly believe from my study of the scriptures over the years that everything that we see here on this earth, the things you can smell, taste and touch, all of this was created by God to display his glory to the angels. The Bible is very clear in the book of Job that the angels already existed when God laid the foundations of the earth. He actually says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and the morning stars, the angels all celebrated. The angels existed prior to what I think you see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. For years, people have argued with me and said, Jim, uh, you think that Satan fell before the creation of the world? I think he did. I think Satan's fall was prior to the creation of the world. They say, well, how can it be? Because God saw everything that he made and it was good. I say, hang on for a second. Colossians chapter 1 says that God made everything that's visible and invisible. All we see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the visible part of creation. But Job actually says that the angels, invisible part of creation, were created prior to the foundations of the world. Actually, if you go back and look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it actually says that God's intent is that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the angels in the heavenly realms. Folks, we think that we're to live our good deeds before men that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. And I say yes, but you're in a bigger stage than that. I believe that Satan had his rebellion prior to the creation of the world. And God said, you want to, you want to be God? Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a universe. I'm going to make a globe. I'm going to put some people on that globe lower than you. We were created lower than the angels, were we not? And I'm going to let you go down and infect them with your attitude. Then I'm going to go down and I'm going to die for them. And I'm going to let them choose whether it's you or me they worship. And if we humble ourselves and fight against this flesh and trust what God has said and is opening our eyes to the truth and we say Jesus is God and Satan is not God and even though everything in me wants to follow Satan, I want to follow Jesus, the Bible says that he's one day going to reward us with the kingdom and the life to come which was prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Oh, and then the Bible actually says we will then also go and judge angels. Doesn't the book of Peter say that the angels long to look into this relationship that we've been given? Well, go to chapter 25 and look at verse 44. Look at Matthew 25, verse, not 44, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for who? For the devil and his angels... Was hell created for humans? No. Hell was created for Satan and his angels. If you remember when Satan had his rebellion, a third of the angels voted for him. And they were cast away in the rebellion as well. And God's got a place prepared for them for eternity. But when we choose to reject God and worship demons, Isn't that what the Jews did? When they worshipped other things besides God, they were worshipping demons. We become followers of Satan. Jesus himself said, Satan is your father, your children of the devil. People that go to hell go to a place that was prepared for Satan and his followers. And when you become one of his followers, you go there too. But it wasn't created for us. Go to Revelation chapter 20. That also was before the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 20. The Bible actually talks about how Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Even though in our time period that we can see it happened, it was already done in the mind of God before the world was even created. Look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night For how long? For never and ever. not interesting? If you remember earlier, at the end of the tribulation period, the beast, which is the Antichrist, which is a human being, which is going to be indwelt by Satan, but it's a human being, and the false prophet, which is a human being, were going to be cast alive straight into the lake of fire. And here in Revelation, at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the the thousand years, at the end of that time when Satan has been allowed out of the pit and he tempts everybody on the globe, He's going to be cast into the lake of fire. And who's still there over a thousand years later? The beast and the false prophet. And they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Go back to Matthew chapter 25. Look at verse 46. The wicked will go away, verse 46, into how long of a punishment? Eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, we've got no problem accepting the fact that we have eternal life, right? But the Bible also says that those that go to hell have eternal punishment. You know, there are some out there that try to teach that hell, if it's there, is only for a period of time and then you're extinguished. There are denominations of Christianity. I've actually spoken in some of their churches where they've gotten mad at me because I teach that hell is forever. They're like, no, our denomination teaches that if they go, they go for a period of time because a loving God wouldn't punish someone for eternity. Well, it wasn't created for them. And he's done everything in his power to keep you from going to hell. And if you choose to pay for your own sins, guess what? You'll be paying for it for eternity because there's no way you can pay it off. Didn't Jesus describe hell as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? Folks, hell is eternal. The question is, are you going to live forever? Yes. But are you going to live forever in the smoking section or the non-smoking section is the real question. Folks, we've got to take this seriously. We've got to take this seriously. If Jesus said that hell is eternal... And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. We need to take it as real. And I know it's hard for us to grasp. That's why we have to go back to the beginning in our minds of Deuteronomy chapter 32. The Lord is holy and true and just and right in everything that he does. By the way, did you all notice in Revelation chapter 16, when God poured out the plagues on the rivers and the seas, and they were turned to blood, and everything in them died, and the stench was unbelievable. The angels in charge of the waters said, you're right in doing it. I'm going to go somewhere in the time we have left here that I want to just help you with a little bit. Some of us have wrestled with, how can it be heaven if I know my loved one's not there? I'm going to say two things to you tonight, and I want to let the Spirit of God speak this truth to you. First of all, I believe that the Bible teaches that when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, you won't notice that they're not there. Because in Revelation chapter 65, verse 17, God says, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered nor even come into mind. When we get done with the millennial kingdom and we move into the eternal state, you won't even know that sister so-and-so is not there. You won't know that mom or daddy is not there, because they'll all have gone and you won't remember. But there's going to be a period of time between then and the eternal state. And I honestly believe that when you see things from the other side and from God's standpoint, and you see him as we are seen, even though you have loved ones that aren't there, you're going to say he's right in sending them to hell. He gave them opportunity. He gave them light. He revealed himself. They chose to not go. And I honestly think you'll respond like the angels and say, you're, dre- you're just in what you've done, God. And you'll also say, I also thank you for the fact that you let me in because I know I didn't deserve it. And I thank you for your grace. Folks, the parable of the sheep and the goats isn't about the church. Oh, are we to visit people in prison? Yeah, are we to treat people and give them water and take care of people? Oh, yeah, there's, we're, we're, there's lots of scriptures that talk about doing good deeds to each other. But that's not how you get into heaven. That's already been taken care of, hopefully, by this point for you. You trusted Christ as your Savior. But if you look in the context of Matthew 24 and 25 and all the prophecies, all of a sudden you'll see when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, if you knew the Old Testament, you'd say, oh, this is Joel chapter 3, where he's going to come and judge the nations according to how they treated Israel and because they divided the land. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.